The message series we are now going through, the hard time letters. There's a list of the messages out in the lobby if you want to keep up with things. These slides, when they catch up with me in a minute, um, they will tell you today's message is don't get stuck in second gear. I got to tell you, it's a normal thing for us to get in the habit of doing things the way we like to do it. I've actually known people in churches, I've actually seen this happen, where a new person will come in, they don't know anybody, and they kind of miss us greeting them, and they come in and they sit down, and this, I haven't seen it happen here, just so you know. They sit down in a chair, and a well-meaning, typically loving church member comes up and says, excuse me, you're sitting in my seat. That happens. That kind of thing happens because people get so stuck. So I do a thing. It's really strange. You can come up with your own things that you do. But I actually, every day, I try to put the shoe on that doesn't feel natural to put on. I don't mean by backwards. I mean, I try to put them on in a different order than feels natural. So I don't, I purposely do not put my left shoe on first every day or my right shoe on first every day. I try to do it differently. If I, like recently I was in training for a a month, if they hadn't had assigned seats, I would have been the one that was upsetting everybody because I would have been sitting in a different seat every day that I could just so that other people would have to move too and we all don't get stuck in a rut. I tell you that up front because I'm going to talk to you about a rut we often get stuck in in a church. And I'm going to say that as a general thing in a church, like our church. And I'm going to also say it in a specific kind of thing, meaning us in the church getting stuck. And I don't mean in in sitting in the same seat every time. You just come into the building. And if you want to try and feel how different this feels, it's not as awkward as you might think. But if you have a habit, like we have a little potluck today after church. If you didn't bring something, I hope you stay anyway. But if you normally sit in a particular, at a particular table, in a particular area of that table, try a different spot today. Let's see what that's like. And the reason why I do these kinds of things is because I don't want in my mind to get stuck in ruts that I don't realize. I want my mind to be in a place where I can try new things, new ways on a regular basis. Okay, with all of that said, the message, like I said, the title is, uh, let's not get stuck in second gear. You'll see that list come up behind me. If you want to know what's next week, I'm not going to tell you. It's on the list. You can look at it. Uh, we're just going right through the book of Ephesians. So, jumping into our text. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, there he goes again, starting with therefore. You can't start with therefore unless 
you understand what just happened. He's been talking about the grace of God in a very big way. And it, it feels like, I don't know if you could feel what he's doing with us. It's like he's given us a shot in the arm, like, you can do this. You can do this. You can build others up. You can look at them with optimistic eyes instead of critical eyes. You can make the world a better place by doing your part. That's kind of the idea, because God's grace is big enough for anyone, even the people that you might look at in a critical way. So, I therefore, so he's reminding us, Paul, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, he's incarcerated, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, pause for a minute because you need to think about that. Let's just say I were to try and experiment with our small congregation. Let's say, because we would have time. Let's say I walk around the room with a microphone and say, what is it that God has called you to? Microphone in your face. I'm not going to do that, and that's why I set it up that way, saying let's just imagine, because that would make us very uncomfortable. But I would like for you to be uncomfortable for a moment and think about it. What would I say if somebody put a microphone in front of me and said, what are you called? Because Paul seems to think, and he's inspired to write this, so God knows if you want to say it that way, you've been called. And you're supposed to live your life worthy to that calling, worthy in such a way that you represent well this calling with all humility. It's not something very trendy in today's world. And gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love. And that's kind of a, a thing that we talked about last week. Love was a key thing. It stays a key thing throughout the theology of our faith. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. All of this comes together. He wants us to be unified in God's way by His Spirit, and then we can have peace. Now, I want to move to the next chunk. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4, and we'll read through verse 7. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Once again, you need to know your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, that's something that's sometimes hard to wrap our heads around. I'm talking about the grace part. The other stuff, some of that's kind of deep, and I think most of us are there. We got it. We, we're, we're good. We don't need to peel that all back. But the grace part, maybe we do. I'll remind you of the prodigal son that's found in Luke 15. Just in a nutshell, I don't want to go over the whole thing, but if you'll remember, there was a loyal son who stayed working, hardworking, smartworking, stayed loyal to the father, and then there was that rogue son, the one that decided, I want my inheritance before you die. I want to take it with me now. And you know the father had to know. He's just going to squander it. But he gave it to him. 
and he went out and partied and had a good time until all the money was gone and found himself eating what pigs eat. And he realized, I I need to go home to my father. So embarrassed, he goes home to his father. He feels horrible. He's totally blown it. He's humiliated. You know he had to have a lot of thoughts before he got to that point. Like, I can't do this. I can't. How, How could he ever accept me, the one who squandered his hard earnings, and now I have nothing. But he's the only one I can go to. And as he goes there, to his surprise, and remember, this is a parable. This is a story that Jesus told so that it aligns itself with an ultimate truth. So he's trying to teach us something with his story. And to his surprise, the father is so excited to see him come home. He's not thinking, yeah, I knew you'd blow it. I knew it. He's not, he's not, at least it's not coming out of his mouth. I knew it. When I let you have the inheritance, you're just going to go out and squander it and look at you now. And that's the way many fathers would handle it. But that's not the way our Father in heaven handles things, and that's not the way he wants us to see things. Instead, it's time, it's time to actually take the fatted calf. This hasn't been done for the loyal son. I mean, the loyal son's been there all along. He could have, why didn't he do that? You know, the loyal son's thinking, how come you didn't do a party for me? We, I'm the one that's taking care of the fatted calf. You could have said when he left, son, you're loyal. I'm going to throw a party for you because you didn't do this. Instead, you're throwing a party for the one who has blown his inheritance. He's embarrassed himself and our family. And you want to throw a party? What's this? This makes no sense. Well, maybe in the way the world thinks, not in the way God thinks. The way God thinks is, I would do anything to save anyone. That's what the cross is about. So even if you've blown it, even if you have to come back and say, I'm sorry, Lord, I know I shouldn't have done this and that and this and this, and I've blown it, and I, I don't even know how I can get out of it. I'm coming back to you. I'm sorry, I put myself in this position, but I'm coming back to you. And the Father's not like, you are going to, I'm going to push you down so you can feel it. No, he's, I'm going to have a party. You finally came home. I've been waiting for this. I knew you were out there making all these mistakes. I saw it. But I've been hoping you'd come home. That's our Father. That's how He thinks. And as Christians, we kind of pride ourselves sometimes in thinking, well, I think that way too. I mean, I want people to come to know Jesus. Even the mean people that were mean to me. Um, Even the people that scare me that are in encampments around the elementary schools. Um, Even hardened criminals. We think that, we, we think that we think that until it comes down to it and it It doesn't feel good when you're in the middle of it. For instance, let's just say somebody that you think of that has been here in the church and you know that they are out there making mistakes. Maybe, Maybe if you can't think of that, think of somebody in your life and you know they once had a faith, they don't now, and they're out there just blowing it. And they come in to church, 
and they come in drunk or drugged and show up on a Sunday morning, falling all over the place, can't even be quiet, disrupting the service, messing everything up for all of us. You know the thoughts that come through our minds, like, this is not appropriate, it's not okay, this is awkward. We talk about it during the week after it happens. You know, there was this person that came in the church building and really messed up our service. And then the, the week's gone, and how do you pray about that person? How do you think about that person? What if you saw that person in the parking lot the next week? Uh-oh, here they come again. Would you pray and say, I hope they come back to Christ? I hope they keep coming until they get back right with God, even if it disrupts my worship service. See, it gets a little awkward when it actually, when the rubber meets the road, we don't necessarily think like that. In fact, what we would probably think is that somebody's coming in disrupting the service, like, I hope we have some, some strong deacons that can remove that person, and that might be appropriate, but maybe some of us could be thinking, I hope we, we, that we have some good leadership that can help that person. Or maybe we could even think, I'm going to try to help that person. Let me remind you of the lost sheep, because this one we could relate to maybe more than the prodigal son. That's also in Luke 15 and in Matthew 18. So the idea is that let's say that person has been in here a few times, has disrupted the service, they got problems, they got issues, make us nervous. And that person, let's say, while I am preaching, somebody pops their head in the door and says, hey, um, that person is having another breakdown just, just out, down at the high school. They're, they need you. And let's just say that happens and I go, I'm sorry, Dan, you can take over, or anybody, you can take over. I got to go take care of this. That would feel weird. Like, why leave us? We came to church. They didn't. But the analogy is bigger than that. We're talking about a shepherd who is caring for the whole flock and leaves the flock to the perils and dangers of whatever attackers might come to go rescue the one. In fact, put... The shepherd would put himself in danger to rescue the one that ran away. Everybody else here is okay, but the one out there is not okay. Making bad decisions. They should be in church, but they're not. What in the world is the shepherd doing leaving to go take care of the one? Because our father rejoices over the one being brought back to the rest of us. That's the idea. The lost sheep is worth our time and energy. Even though they're messing up, they're not making the mistakes we've been making. They know better. We're doing better. But our Father will do anything and everything possible to reach lost people because He loves each one of us. And in our text today, if you notice this, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So we've got some seasoned Christians in this room who don't need a lot of extra grace right now. They've been living the life for many years, praying on a regular basis, reading their Bible every day, dwelling on God things on a regular basis. They don't need a whole lot of grace. They mess up 
like the rest of us, but maybe less often because they're closer to God. They've been doing this. They're a seasoned, a veteran Christian. And, and yet there are those of us who are kind of new. And every now and then a, a word slips out that shouldn't. Shame on us because that's not okay. But we're, we're new. We're, we're working on it. Um, every now and then there's a thought that enters my head that shouldn't and mm, I keep, it keeps entering my head. That's okay because we're new. It's, it's not really okay. We need to stop, but we need more grace. Does that make sense? The measure of grace that God's give is in accordance to the need. That's the way it works. And His grace is amazing. There's a song about that. I'm sure you've heard it. <laughs> so let's move on to the next part of our text. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, we've just landed on a complexity that has baffled people for ever since it's been written, I'm sure. What in the world is this saying? People get confused. I encourage you to look at the different commentaries that are out there because there's all different kinds of theories about this and in the next two verses as well. But I want to give you, this is coming from Psalm uh, 68, 18. That's a quote. You see it up behind me, that first part. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave, gave gifts to men. So there's a whole lot of theories on what precisely does that mean? Does that mean that, and this is one of the cool ones, but does that mean that when Jesus conquered death, when he rose from the dead, then he just, rallied a whole bunch of evilness, captured them, and just said, I'm in charge now. I don't know. That's one of the theories. But there's a whole bunch of cool things wrapped around that. Don't, don't spend too much time on it, though, because we don't want to miss the main points God's trying to get to us here. What, what happens is we read this. Look at verse 9. He ascended. What does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions? What some people do is they go, see? Jesus went to hell. That's what, there's a lot of people that teach this. A lot of respected theologians that teach this. I don't think the Bible teaches this. Look at what it actually says, the earth. You see, we have a text that will help us. I'll show you. There's a text in John chapter 3 when he was talking to Nicodemus. Look at this. You'll see it up behind me. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. It says very clearly in our text, look at it behind me and look in your Bibles. He descended to the lower regions and look what it says, the earth. Why would you say something else? Because the Bible says it's the earth. That's what it means. You know, I, I'm not smart enough to give you my opinion about what it means. Just read it and believe it. The earth. That's what it means. Was that that hard? I don't think so. Okay. I'm glad you're with me because we got some more stuff to cover. And uh, if you need clarity on that, we can talk privately. Feel free to call me or at the dinner. Now, I want to show you an image of 
a part of my neighborhood that I grew up in in Shreveport, Louisiana. That's what it looks like. And I, you can't really tell what that is, just a bunch of houses in the neighborhood. But I want to show you where my house was. You'll see, a, there you go, it's right behind me. That's my house from an overhead view. And I want to show you the convenience store. This is the convenience store. It's important in the story that I'm going to tell you because it has something to do with what I'm going to show you right now. So the kids are gone. You need me to show you how to do this. I'll show you how to do this. Just ask me. So I just took, Lila helped me find a piece of fabric. I tried it with uh, three different pieces. This is, this is my friend. It's my pet. Some of you already know how to do this. Don't, don't, don't blow it. Don't tell anybody. So watch closely. This is my pet. Whoa. Did you see that? I'll do it one more time. My pet, if you don't pet it right, it gets a little upset. Whoa. Did you see that? Raise your hand if you know exactly what just happened. Oh, did you see it jump? Did that look weird? So what's happening is, you, I love watching magic tricks. Ma magic is bad, tricks good, and they're all magic tricks. <laughs> they're not real. So I love watching magic tricks. And so this is, I wouldn't even call that this, but it's kind of like it. So basically, I folded this in such a way so that it's rather stiff. And as I was petting my pet, you saw it jump. Well, I'm distracting you with my hand petting as this hand's going, whoop, all I'm doing is that. That's it, but you just don't see it because I'm petting it. So that's the way magic tricks work. Somebody will say, watch this hand while they do something with this one. Does that make sense? That's the way these things happen. So the reason why I told you about where I grew up, that's my house. I was born and raised in that location, in the convenience store, you can see it's only a little more than a block away. When I went to Bible college my freshman year, I came home and I worked two jobs, a full-time job and a part-time job. The full-time job was at that convenience store. This is a scary neighborhood I grew up in, and after I tell you the story, you'll understand, yeah, that's a scary neighborhood. Well, there were bullet holes. When I got the job, my parents were like, ah, of course you got the job. That's an easy job to get. Nobody wants to work there. There's bullet holes in the glass in the front. There's bullet holes above the cashier's head in the wall. Like, that's, that's a scary place. So I worked overnight there and into the morning, and there was a crime that was happening in the Shreveport, Bossier area, and the owner of the store came in and told two of us, there would be two of us that morning working together when daylight hits, and he said, look, we're, if it happens here, you need to be ready. I don't care how you're ready, but you need to be ready. And he brought in the newspaper article, and we read it. What was happening is there was a, it was a, a, a trick, like what I was doing with that, that little cloth there, except this was an elaborate trick. It involved at least two people. One person would go up to the cashier in a convenience store and say, hey, um, I'm missing, I left a ring on pump five out there. It's a family heirloom. It's, it's really priceless. Uh, did somebody say, oh, I'm sorry. I said, let me back up and tell the story correctly. Someone will call and say, hey, I left a ring at pump five. Does anyone found a ring? And the timing is key. About that time, somebody walks in. Hey, I just found a ring out at pump five. 
And of course, they're on the phone with the person saying, hey, did they find my ring? Oh, so I tell you what, um, just give them anything. I'll be there. I'm about five minutes away. Just give it to them and, and I will pick it up. And so what's happening is cashiers are emptying the cash registers, giving them a whole lot of money. And the person on the phone saying, I'll, I'll give you more than you give them. I'll give you a reward. And then what happens is when the police arrive, of course, no, one's, no one came for the ring and all the money's gone. So we, we devised a plan and it worked. And it was a, a crazy thing. It ended up where the guy, this is, criminals are not that smart and I'm sorry if you have a history of crime, but that's, commit crime, you're not that smart, I'm just saying. But this guy, when we caught him and we had a plan and we got it, so she was, I had actually answered the phone and then I was, I said, man, I want to see that. That was our cue. That was her cue knowing that we're, we're doing this. And so she took the phone, she stopped doing what she's doing, she dialed 911 and I'm looking at the ring and I'm like, oh, this is cool. She's talking, keeping them on the phone, keeping them on the phone, keeping them on the phone. Then we see the police cars. Yes. And so the guy, as the police cars come, he st- tries to take off to the bathroom. I try to grab him, and I couldn't grab him. He thought if he flushed it down the toilet, problem solved. Criminals are not that smart. He was caught, but my parents happened to drive by when there was about seven police cars all around the convenience store. Scary place. Reason why I told you that story is because it's kind of a clever, clever little scheme sometimes. They're not that smart, but sometimes clever in the way that criminals will do things. Watch this hand while I do something with this hand. And you get caught off guard. And this is the way the devil operates. He is a schemer. He will distract you from whatever so that he can do whatever and catch you off guard. Let's move on in this text. Verse 11, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Because the devil's going to do those things. So up at the top, you'll see in the text behind me, He's got specific callings, and this is not a comprehensive list, but it's a list. I want you to pay attention. He says apostles, prophets, evangelists, and, and there's a, you see some notes in my ESV. I left it on the screen behind me. Shepherds, like leaders, the, the shepherd that would go after the one and leave the 99, that's a shepherd. Shepherds do things. If you think about shepherds, the way they do this is they would have these staffs with a curve on them, and you could grab a sheep around the neck, and that wouldn't feel very good but to get them back, or you could poke them when they don't want to move. One that is of interest to me is evangelists. That's what I'm called to be. I know this. And teachers. That's cool. Some of you are called to be teachers. That's pretty cool. Now I want to move down to this part where it says to mature manhood. And that word mature is found in another place in the Bible. It's found all over the place, but it's a Greek word. I don't have it up behind me today because of the sake of time. i got to race through this 
rabbit trail. Did you see that? You'll see it again. So the word teleon means mature, perfect, or complete. Like Goldilocks and the three bears, you know, each time was just right. Remember that? You know that story? That's what you should think of when you see the word mature or complete or perfect, especially perfect in the Bible. Some of your translations might say that. And the word manhood is actually the word for man. But when you're talking about mature man, it's talking about we need to grow up. Now, I want to recommend a book to you. It's cheap. It's like $6.99 on Amazon, Charismatic Chaos by John F. MacArthur Jr. I'm recommending this book to you because I don't have time to give you all that I would like to give you this morning. But I'm on a rabbit trail. That's why you see the rabbit every now and then. I want to tell you a little bit about this Charismatic Chaos thing by taking you to a familiar passage in the Bible. Now, you, do, you know where the love chapter is, right? It's 1 Corinthians 13. And in 1 Corinthians 13, there goes the rabbit. It says, at the end of all the love is patient, love is kind, all those things, you're supposed to be able to put your, your name there. Did you know that? Jeff is patient. Jeff is kind. And if you can't put your name where that word love is there, there's a, there's a problem. It ends, that section in 1 Corinthians 13 ends with, love never ends. And then the subject gets very interesting. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, I really wish I had time. And this is not in the book, Charismatic Chaos. I'll try to get a, I have a document I wrote that'll help you if you need understanding on this. The word here is teleon. That's a Greek word. Um, sorry, that's not it. It's glossolalia. Glossolalia means tongue speaking, literally translated tongue speaking. You remember what happened in Acts on the day of Pentecost? Remember how, how the apostles spoke and everyone heard their language? Um, and there were more languages than there were apostles? That's a miracle. That word there is not the same word that's here. That word's dialectos. That means language speaking. And let me tell you something. There's, there's a thing, and especially in many uh, churches just like this, we, get, we, have a, we run into a problem when we start saying the same thing happened when we're talking about tongue speaking that's talking about here in 1 Corinthians. And it, by the way, there's details. You can read... Uh, all the way through verse, uh, chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians 13, or read 1 Corinthians 13, 14, and 15, you'll read quite a bit about tongue speaking. What you read in, about tongue speaking is that it's a, it's a God language. It requires an interpreter. In order to please God, you have to have someone given with a gift of interpretation. So it's a language that nobody knows, that God has to gift somebody with this God language the ability to translate or otherwise don't do it. That's a requirement of God. And tongue speaking is a gift given by God. And you read in all the way through chapters 13 through 15 in 1 Corinthians, very specific details about the way it's supposed to go down if it's going to happen. So you have to have a translator that's gifted by God with, to understand this God language, not a known language. It's a 
God language that's gifted. And by the way, there are churches that try to teach. I don't know if you've been to these churches. There are churches that will teach people that you've not arrived spiritually until you've spoken in tongues. I mean, you really climb the ladder. You speak in tongues, you have arrived. Or otherwise, you're just, you haven't grown yet. But my Bible and your Bible, I'll, I'll try to bring some paperwork for you. I wrote a pamphlet on this as well. But my Bible and your Bible teaches it's the least of all of the gifts. It actually ranks them the, in the greatest to the least. And it says tongues is the least tongue speaking. It's not something you're supposed to. It also says that the Holy Spirit's the one that decides who gets to speak in tongues and who doesn't. I was allowed to uh, go up to, uh, I was up at Overlake Christian Church. They had a, a Northwest Ministry Conference for many years. They still do it, but they do it at a different location. And they asked the Assemblies of God pastors to gather. They had their own little meeting. And I thought, well, my name badge doesn't say what denomination. So I went and sat in on their thing. They don't know. So I sat in on it and I listened to them kind of rebuke the pastors. We've got to stop emphasizing, overemphasizing tongue speaking. It's driving people off. And that's what also is said in 1 Corinthians 13 to 15. It actually runs people off, scares people. It becomes a clanging symbol to God when you're doing it the wrong way. So he's got specific directions. And by the way, another thing that says in 1 Corinthians 13 to 15 is that when tongue speaking happens, it's not supposed to be a room full of people doing it at once. It's supposed to happen one person at a time, maybe two at the most at any given worship service. That's not the way you see it play out in the churches that overemphasize it. I wish I had more time to talk about this, but our Bible gives us insight right here up behind me in this particular text that will help us to understand. So look at the difference, first of all. What happened in Acts? Even if you don't know the Greek words, in Acts, there were people of multiple languages more than there were numbers of apostles that were preaching. Yet everyone heard the message in their own language. And I don't know if there were some apostles that two voices were coming out, or if it was, I don't know if the gift was in the hearing or the speaking, but there was an amazing miracle that happened on the day of Pentecost. What I do know is there was no translator needed. Do you understand? They, they all heard in their own language. When the apostles spoke on the day of Pentecost, everyone understood, even all the diverse languages. So what happens is, what I've heard in some of our churches, I've heard a missionary will come back from some country that, and they, they say that they were around a campfire and there was a witch doctor or something and, and they were speaking a language they didn't know yet, but when they preached, the people understood them. And, and some people will say that's not true because the Bible says tongue speaking has stopped and we get on to them. I've heard this happen, but the Bible doesn't teach that. That still could happen. What happened on the day of Pentecost, where does it say in the Bible that that won't happen again? That you could be in a, in a country, you could be speaking, and they could understand you in their own language. Where in the Bible does it say that won't happen? Because you see, what happened in the day of Pentecost is not what happens in 1 Corinthians 13 to 15. That's a God language which requires an interpreter. Nobody understands it unless God gifts someone to translate on the day of Pentecost, everybody understood. There was no misunderstanding. 
You see, there's a big difference in the two things. I know there's a similarity because we're talking about languages. But other than that, they're very different. Now we'll look at this text. Notice what this says. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. That necessarily means they will stop. Tongue speaking will stop. I wish I had more time to go over all this. This is a rabbit trail. I'm not going to spend a whole lot more time on it. But look at what this says, and it says for knowledge. And by the way, that is, understand this. When you see this, there's, I know we talked about epignosis and gnosis. I want you to understand, when it's talking about this knowledge, this says it, you know, it takes it further. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. Understand this. As, as Paul is writing this, as he's inspired, there are some people that had been in the presence of Paul. And there are some people that got to read his letter to the Corinthians. But not, the, not everyone who read Paul's letter to the Corinthians had Peter's letter or James. You see, at some point in time, we only know in part. Back then, we know in part. We only prophesy in part. You, of course you prophesy the prophecies at one point in time have to stop so that they can be fulfilled. Does that make sense? There has to be some kind of stopping point so that there can be a fulfillment at some point. But it clearly says at one point in time, we'll have all the knowledge we need. We'll have all that God wants to give us in some packaged form to fulfill His will on earth. Do you believe that this is it? Well, look at this. It says, I'll take you further because some will challenge this. That's what happens sometimes. Oh, sorry, can you go back to where we just were? I'm very handicapped because I closed my Bible with my notes. Uh, so look what it says. But when the perfect comes, and people go, okay, see, that's talking about when Jesus comes, that's when tongues stops. That's, that's when tongues stops. Because it says when the perfect comes. Nope, that's impossible. Because the, the word there, teleon, is that which is perfect. It, it's, here's the way it works in the Greek language and a lot of other languages. When you write a sentence, everything in there will track with one gender. It'll be in the male, or it'll be in the female, or it'll be in the neutral gender. If it is writing about a person, it will be in the male or female gender all the way through the whole sentence, every word. If you know the gender of the person, it will be that gender. So if you know it's female, it'll be female. If you don't know the gender, then it will be male, just by default. It's a human it's a, or a person. So if this is talking about Jesus, when the perfect person comes, this would be in the masculine gender. Guess what? The whole phrase is in the neutral gender. This is not talking about a person. In fact, remember when I told you, when you see the word perfect, or you see the word mature or complete, understand it as just right. So let's see if that works. But when the just right comes, when things are just right, the partial will pass away. We will no longer just be dependent on a letter from Paul and a letter from Peter. We'll have it all together. Hmm. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. My grandfather used to do these things that entertained me when I was very small. He'd take his thumb and put it between his fingers and say, I got your nose. And I, I think when I was little, it must have entertained me because when I got older, he quit doing that. I saw him do it to the other little, the younger ones, but he didn't do it with me. Why did he stop? I didn't need that anymore. I grew up. 
And there was a time when the church needed validation, needed all kinds of things. And the way God saw it was you needed all these different things. And one of them was tongue speaking. One of them was God speaking directly, audibly to people, inspiring. That's why I don't use the word inspire. I, you know, I, I try not to use it unless I'm talking about this book because this book is God-breathed. Anything else I say that's God-breathed, then I equate it to this book. I might as well write it in there, in the back. And when people do this, what they do is they like to say, God told me, and that's the end of it. What do you say to that? God said it, so I can't argue. Really? Well, check it with Scripture, because I've seen a bunch of people say, well, God told me, and they say something in complete conflict with this book. And God's not that way. He's not going to say something that's in conflict with something else he said. This is God we're talking about. So, we need to grow up and we need to understand that God did. Understand, God is smart enough that if he's going to give us a Bible, wouldn't he say that at some point in time, he's done inspiring things to be written? At some point in time, it will be done. I will give you all that you need. That's it. This is it right here, right behind us. When I was a child, I spoke. And look at this. It goes further. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Look at verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly. And some of us have a hard time with that analogy. But think about this. You're going you're gonna to get it right now. Have you been to a public park and looked in the mirror that they've got hanging? That scratchy piece of steel? Like, what? why even put that there? You can't see anything. So you understand, we, what it says in Scripture, for now we see in a mirror dimly. So we don't really, we just see a poor reflection of what's going to come. Now that's when he wrote this, but at some point in time, we're going to come face to face with God's plan for us. This is it. For now I know in part, okay, you're reading the letter from Paul but there's more. At some point in time, he will, we will know fully. We will have God's full plan for us here on earth. Now, I'll, I'll give you a little bit more at the end of the message. But I, I wish I had more time. If I had, I'd like to do a whole message on this, but I can't. We're in the middle of Ephesians, so we've got to move on. If you have questions, ask them. All right. Now, we're off the rabbit trail We'll go back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. I know we already read it. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood. See, it makes a difference when we have that context. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and in deceitful schemes. you got to be careful. I don't know if you realize this or not, but we're, the people that write the books that we read about the Bible are just people. And we've got to use a discerning mind. And notice this word, mature, too mature. You'll see that up. I'll underline behind me. That is the same word, teleon, mature, perfect, and complete. 
We've been given all that we need for us. This is God's plan. This is the wisdom of God. It doesn't get any better than this. And I hope you believe that. And by the way, do you believe that? Do you believe that the Bible is God's wisdom to us, His plan for us? Do you? Okay, great. I'm so glad to hear that. Do you live like that? If this is the wisdom of God, man, we would be in this so much. We would be wanting to know this because it can't get wiser than God. I want this in my head. Don't you? I'm going to work on it. I'm going to work on it. I hope you do too. Now, back on a little bit of a rabbit trail, but not, not a big one. I want to show you something. If I had time, I'd take you through a whole class, and I, this might come one of these days. Look at this chart up behind me. So let's just say we have this new, and we already have a discipleship program here, and it's good. Uh, let's just say I take you through these classes that we go through an introduction to Central Kitsap Christian Church, and that would be the 1.0. And I've given you a chart similar to this before, but I want to show you in the context of what we're talking about this Basically, most people are in 2.0. So the way it would be is we'd have an introductory class. You want to learn about Central Kitsap Christian Church. You want to learn about God, Jesus, and the Bible. This would be the 1.0 introductory thing. Learn about the church, learn about God, Jesus, and the Bible. So you're new here or new to Christianity, we take you through that. And it's a course that we put together to take you through. And then after that, we take you through the most fun of the four, and that would be the, the connect one, the one where we teach you all the different ways to get resources. I mean, uh, great, like I just recommended that charismatic chaos, all kinds of recommendations, how you can use the church library, how to connect with other people, get involved in small groups. We could even do that at the 1.0 level, but level two, you're definitely getting connected, and you're loving the new songs you're hearing because you're in a new church. And you're loving the, all the different new th- ways you see things done. It's just fun. And what happens is this is definitely the most exciting piece for most people to be in. You know, I love my new church. I love my new small group. That's a great place to be. There's nothing unspiritual about that. But that's where most people go and stay. I want to show you some more pieces that we might put together if we put together a, a class. Here's some different charts. This one right here, I want you to wrap your head around this idea. Basically, let's say we do, I don't know, we could do, we could say in the community, we could just say, let's say, because I'm a man, sorry, I'm going to go there. Let's just say I want to reach some in. So let's say we want to watch a football game, CLT Hawks. We'll make it happen here, somewhere in the in our on our campus, and we invite people, hey, come, we'll have something, you know, we'll have food, we'll watch a football game, just we're going to come and hang out. That's what we're going to do. What that is, is that's a way just to, and if that bothers you, let's think of it this way. Let's just say you decide, I want to reach my neighbors. I'm just going to have them over for barbecue. And if that's your idea, to just have them over for barbecue to get to know your neighbors, you're not going to try to force them through a Bible study when you say, come over for hamburgers. That comes across as deceitful. Here's what happens. Let's say we say, we're going to have a foot. We're going to watch the Seahawks are playing today. We're going to watch this. And the guys come. Your buddies come. And when they get here, you decide at halftime, okay, I'm going to take you through a Bible study. They won't be back because you lied to them. You said, 
we're going to watch a football game, and you took them through something else. you got to be honest, but we have to have these ways we reach people, we, we bring them in, and then we take them through the funnel of the church. That's what that first chart's about. It's a lot more elaborate than I'm giving you, but that's just one piece. You have to be clear when you're trying to reach out to people. Don't turn everything into the more advanced things. Sometimes you've got to meet people where they are. Does that make sense? All right, let me look at the next one. This next diagram... Church is a river. This is the one I really want you to grab out of the four I'm going to show you behind me. People have it in their heads that the church is a lake. What I mean by that is people think that we're supposed to get new people to come into the church and they're supposed to stay there for generations. And that's not the way it works. Now, the Southern Baptist Church thinks people stay longer, but other than the Southern Baptist Church, the universal number is people stay in a given church on average three and a half years. That's Barna. Three and a half years is the average stay, and uh, also from Jim Putman, out of uh, he's a Boise Bible College graduate. His church, uh, he's in I think Post Falls, Idaho. Their church runs about ten thousand on the weekends. That's pretty cool. Uh, During the pandemic, in the first couple of months of the pandemic, they baptized over 600 people when a lot of churches weren't even open. But anyway, uh, three and a half years is the average stay. So if you see the church rather as a lake, people think our church is just not good because people aren't here for generations. We need to understand we live, we are in a military area as well. People are going to come in and they're going to go out. That's just the nature of the modern times. I'm sorry. But that's the way it is. So if you see the church as a river, that means if you understand that we, can, <laughs> we can't guarantee anything, but we have people on average for three and a half years, we need to ask the question, what do we do with people in the three and a half years we have them? What do we do? Are they better off spiritually when they come or at the end than when they came? Did we do something? Did we help them? If we're doing what a church is supposed to do, then that's what we're doing. Okay, the next chart, real quickly. This is that chart again. You're familiar with this. Basically, what we do, what I would do is say, if you know all these things, you're ready for level two. Here's the next one. And you've seen that. So, see, you would be ready for number two. You've seen all those things. And then I would show you this. It's like an arrow. Let's fill in the arrow. Here's one level. Here's two level. You'll click away. There they go. Here's three level and four. Notice the gap in the middle. That's 2.1. That's where most people stay. And you'll see the 2.1 come up behind me, I think. There you go. Um, that's kind of purposeful. That We want people to kind of linger there for a while, but we don't want you to get stuck there. This is where you're cutting your teeth on spiritual things. It's when you're learning the new songs and the way we do communion and the way we do our small groups and all these other different things. It's as unique as a church. You learn these things. Just don't get stuck there. All right. Now back to this chart I showed you before. Quickly. All right. So here's what I want you to understand. There's a distinction between one and two and three and four. Look at this. You'll see um, kind of a... Um, a faded block ago, if you just click that. There you go. I want to show you that because on the 1 and 2.0, that's mostly God and self. You're mostly absorbed with 
trying to be closer to God and focused on your own self-help kind of things. You're trying to grow. You're trying to get the newest Chuck Swindoll book or whatever it is you're trying to do. Max Lucado. You're trying to, you're trying to develop yourself. And, and that's okay. That's good. You're trying to get closer to God. That's all good. But that is mostly God and self-centered. We want to have you advance to the God and others-centered. Does that make sense? We want you to not get stuck. And here's what happens. And I want to show you this next slide if you'll go ahead and... Go to the next slide. This is where you should get, is three and four, where you're reaching out to others. You're actually taking the bull by the horns and you're going out and doing ministry the way God's called you to do it. Remember when I asked about what you're called to do? You should be doing that. Here's what happens. When churches and people in churches and most people get stuck in the 2.0, what happens is, so you see the Notice the carpet here. This needs to be replaced. Does everybody notice that? We all, we've been talking about it, different people, so we do need to replace the carpet. So at some point in time, the carpet's going to get replaced. And let me scare you, it might be a different color. And I'll tell you, if you don't know this already, democracy really does not belong in the church. So what happens is we need to hand that off to people who can understand interior design better than I can, and we let them pick the color. And you know what's going to happen is that whatever color ends up on this floor, some of us are not going to be happy with it. That's, that's reality. We wouldn't have picked that color. If it was me, I would have picked a different color. We, there will be those of us who think that, and that's okay. We have different opinion. But if you're stuck in 2.0, you might actually get quite upset about it. You do know that, have, have you heard this? Churches split over the color of the carpet. Have you heard this? Let's not do that. That happens when people are stuck in a spiritual rut and they're still focused on themselves and self-help me, self-help me, instead of focus on others. You get to the point where you're trying to see what God wants you to do for others. You don't care that the color of the carpet isn't the color you would have picked. You, You don't really care. you got a lot more fishing to do than that. that. That's not about reaching lost people for Jesus. That's not about trying to help people back into the fold that have ran away. That's more about me and what I want. The people of God, we've got to do better than that. Same things with the songs. I mean, I was perfectly fine if the computer failed today and we had to go back to the hymn books because singing off the wall is just kind of weird. Which is what we do. And many of us would have delighted in it. And some of us would have said, let's never put them back. We must keep going with the hymn books. It's not about what I like and it's not about what you like. It's about what God likes. And if we can please Him by being focused on leading others to him. We won't get caught up in what I want or what you want. Does this make sense? That's why I took you down this rabbit trail. I wanted to show you all of that. Okay. And this actually leads us to the last part of our text. Verse 15 and following. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, 
makes the body grow so that it builds itself up into love. There it is. I told you. It, it is about love. That is key. And notice at the beginning, it says we're supposed to grow up. Some of us needed to hear this message. Maybe it was me. I, want to, I told you I'd take you to that last verse in the love chapter. At the very end, after it said all that stuff about God's going to give us everything, look, and, in, and in what remains is love, look at the last verse. Here it is right up behind me. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide or remain. These three, but the greatest of these is love. And the whole point of that whole thing was there was tongue speaking and prophecies and you had this direct knowledge given to to special people. But you know what? Those are going to go away. Faith, hope, and love are going to remain. And the greatest is love. That's where we need to focus. God loved us. Let's love others. It's simple. The title of the message, Let's Not Get Stuck in Second Gear. I'm wrapping it up right now. Here's a uh, little image I want to show you. Remind you, you need to get beyond where you are spiritually, no matter where you are, one, two, three, or four. I want to show you this image of the gears, and I want to talk to you quickly to wrap up this, and then I'll pray. Any of you ever uh, pop a clutch to start a car? Raise your hand high. There's a few, and more than I thought, actually. So the way we were all taught to do it, most of us, let me, I'll just verify so were you taught when you pop a clutch, and most of us did it on a three-speed on the column on a truck, right? Is that right? Okay, so were you taught that you've got to push it or let it go down a hill, and you have the clutch pushed in, and you have it in first gear, and you pop it? How many of you were told that's the way you do it? How many of you were told to do it in second gear? That one doesn't hurt. That one will not jar your truck. <laughs> Just so you know, you can do it in second gear. And by the way, it even works on automatics. Uh, just probably wouldn't recommend it. But when you pop a clutch, it starts, when the battery's dead, that's the way you have to do it. I recommend don't do it in first gear, do it in second gear. And if you have a bunch of gears, maybe third. You have to have plenty of speed to do it in a higher gear than second. The reason why I'm talking about this is you can pop the clutch and you can start it. Great. Some of you don't even know how to shift gears, but if you manually put it into second gear, you do understand that you can still get where you're trying to go just slower. And you're going to destroy the transmission if you stay in second gear. Spiritually speaking, God wants you to shift higher. He wants you to take it to the next level. Let's do that. Pray with me. God, thank you so much for taking us through another chunk of Scripture, but this time giving us a swift kick in the pants and telling us that we need to grow up. God, we do want to make you happy, and we do want to grow. We want to be more you-centered than us-centered. Help us with that, even if it's painful. In Jesus' name, amen.